Hello, this is Dan Murphy, and you're listening to the Don't Change Much podcast. Okay, I get it. Life is busy. Trying to juggle your job, family, and other responsibilities as well. Often it's hard to strike a proper work-life balance. But don't forget, it's super important to always look out for number one, no matter how busy things are. Kevin Bieksa knows this. The former NHL defenseman has his hands full. From running a hockey academy in Southern California to weekend duties as a national voice on Hockey Night in Canada. Not to mention considerable travel for both roles. And yet Kevin continues to make health and wellness a priority. In this episode, we'll talk to Kevin about what motivates and challenges him most when it comes to staying on top of his health and how becoming an outspoken mental health advocate started with the need to educate himself so he could support friends and loved ones. Manage your stress, not the other way around. For simple ways to improve your mental health, check out the free MindFit Toolkit from the Canadian Men's Health Foundation. Complete a self-assessment, access virtual counseling, and learn more about how anxiety, stress, or depression might be impacting your health. Go to menshealthfoundation.ca and access the MindFit Toolkit to start improving your mental wellness today. Happy to be joined by my my good friend, Kevin Bieksa. We don't live in the same city anymore, but we still keep in contact. We still work in the same fields, although he's surpassed me in, <laughs> in that as well. Kevin, you, you didn't ever officially retire until now. The Canucks made it possible for you to sign a one-day contract with that organization. Why? What did you think about the gesture, and why did you want to end it in that fashion? Well, first of all, Murph, an interesting introduction. I kind of like you. I kind of don't. I kind of want to say something nice, but I'm not going to. So appreciate that. But uh, great to be back on on air with you as always. We always have a good time. The Canucks thing, you know, this goes back like three years ago when. I was a year or two removed from playing and I hadn't officially retired and obviously wasn't thinking about playing again as, as time had moved on. I started a business, a hockey academy. I've been coaching my son and started doing some TV and, and was pretty content moving on. And, and just a conversation with my dad. And he said, basically threw it in my face and said, what do you think about retiring a Canuck? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And then the whole idea of like, well, why don't you sign a one-day contract? I've heard of it. I've seen it in a couple other instances. It would be a good way to bring closure to your career and to give like your family and close friends and the fans a little bit of a way to basically celebrate your career. Like you, you know, you're, you're always consider yourself a Vancouver Canuck even after you left and at the city so long and had both kids there and big part of the community. So anyways, that, that was the original idea. We reached out to, I believe, Jim Benning at the time, and they were all for it. They thought it'd be a good idea and a nice, fun night to celebrate something positive. And uh, we had a date planned. It was March 28th, 2020, and flights were booked. The day was planned. I don't believe it was announced, Murph, but then obviously COVID happened March 15th and everything shut down. And then there was more important things going on in life, and it took a while to revisit it. But uh, Jim Rutherford called me in the summer. And it was one of those things where like, you don't really ask for something like that. Like, you know, if the, if the team reaches out, it's a huge honor, but you don't really, I don't think you really ask for something like that. So when Jim reached out in the summer and said he really wanted to do this for me and the fans, it, it was, uh, honestly, I was taken away. It was, it was a nice gesture and, and I appreciate 
everything the Canucks did for me. And I'd love to just have one fun night playing against my other team, the Ducks, and, and celebrate and have some fun. And all my family's coming in and it'll be fun. Great. Yeah, no, I think uh, it's a good way to, to close out the career uh, that you had in the National Hockey League. You know that uh, we've spoken often about mental health. I'd like to start a conversation today more about physical health. And maybe I'm going to ask you right now. I, I know when you retired, you were doing some tough mutters and, and things like that, which I saw. But what do you do day in and day out to, to take care of yourself physically? Well, I'm pretty passionate about it, Murph. And honestly, if you take care of yourself physically, I think it makes taking care of yourself mentally a little bit easier. If you're feeling good and your body feels good and you're physically comfortable, then I think the mental part is a little bit easier. It's not, it doesn't make it way easier, but I think it, it helps for sure. Like anything, right? You think about when you're sleep deprived and, and how grumpy and miserable you are because you haven't physically given your body enough sleep. So I kind of approach it the same way. Like I, I still train and work out every day. I'm not working out for anything in particular. You mentioned the, the Tough Mudder, the Spartan races. Like I, I'll do those once in a while just for a challenge. But honestly, like I'll do a lot of other challenges that no one else is around and just for myself. Like I'll run like a half a marathon and not tell anybody and just time myself and, and just do it for myself. Like it's a personal accomplishment. But I think like waking up every day and just accomplishing things, whether it's it's making the bed and then having some water, driving your kids to school, taking your dog for a walk, answering emails and getting some work done. Like I'm always just trying to accomplish things every day. And part of that is is being physically active. So I think everybody has to sweat every day. And, and for everybody, that's something different. Like whether it's a bike ride, walk up a hill, a jog, swimming, yoga, Pilates, skipping, you can do something at home. You can do something outside, especially in Vancouver, right? I know some places in Canada are limited by the, the winter weather, but there's something physical you can do every day and that not only helps you physically, but also mentally. I think it's very therapeutic. Like it's kind of cyclical, Murph, but when I was in college, running was a big thing. A lot of track running. We were on the track all the time running, three mile runs, five mile runs, sprints. Then when I got to Vancouver in the NHL, everything was bike. Everything was stationary recumbent bike. And then since I've been retired, I've been running a lot now. So I run like every couple of days, not as much as the Sedines, but every couple of days. And honestly, I, I do it because it's therapeutic. It just, it clears my mind. I feel good sweating when I get home. I probably placed a lot more emphasis on recovery than I did when I played, which is kind of backwards when you think about it, but stretching and yoga and, and hot tubs and cold tubs and, and just taking care of your body. Cause I, I just want to feel good the rest of the day. I wake up every morning and I want to feel good, right? Like once in a while, if it's, if it fits in your schedule, grab like a 20 minute nap, grab a 40 minute nap if you can. You know, like I like to have like the occasional drink, uh, like a glass of wine or something, but I make sure like it's strategic. I'm not just drinking every day. I'm having like a glass of wine if I'm going out for a nice dinner with my wife and, and some friends. But then when I wake up the next day, Murph, it's not like cruise through the day. It's like almost a little bit of damage control. Make sure I overhydrate that day, do some sort of exercise to sweat out. And then like three, four or five days later, when I drink again, I feel great. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but it's like a process to take care of your body and you have to make it, I think, a priority throughout the day amongst the chaos of your job and your kids and everything else. So it's something that you plan every day and you find for yourself that the morning is the best time to get it done because that sets you up to have a successful day? Well, that's my schedule though. I think you have to do whatever works for your schedule. So I'm up at 545. I wake my son up. We go to, to my academy. We're on the ice at seven. 
We train till 7.30 and, and I'm coaching, right? I'm, I'm moving around a little bit, but I'm not, I don't consider that my training. Bus comes to the rink and picks the kids up, takes them to campus. I come home right away, bring my dog to the park. But first thing in the morning, I'm having like a black coffee, a bottle of water and an oatmeal on the way to the rink. So I'm getting something in me right away. I get home and after I take my dog uh, for his exercise, now like my body's ready to train, right? Like I'm not, I can't train on a full stomach. So for me, it works like perfectly like 10 o'clock, 10 to 11 is usually when I train. And then after that, I eat like a lunch and then I can do emails, meetings. Uh, like if I have any appointments, I schedule them usually for after 11. That's kind of the way it works. Then kids pick them up usually, or kids come home or if I get to golf once a week. And then when you come home, obviously everyone's kids have tons of activities. So then you're kind of in that mode. So obviously you, you had to be fitness focused when you, you know, play hockey at college, when you're a professional athlete. Do you remember when you kind of started to focus on it prior to that? Was it, did you go to the gym to look good or was it always serving a purpose of, of making sure your body was in the right spot? I think when I first started training consistently, it was grade 10 and it was like a super fitness class that I took, which was basically like an introduction. And I played football in high school. So it was like our football coach and he was basically trying to help us train for football. So I, I originally started working out for football, which is kind of funny. And then that like that evolves, you know, you train because you think it's, there's a lot of things going on at that age. You think you want to look good for girls and you want to you know, help out your, your sports aspect. And then when, you know, once you get to college, I think it kind of sinks in a bit. Like I want to train to make myself a better athlete. You're, you're not really doing it to be healthy. I think you're doing it for a purpose then. But then when you become an adult, I think you realize like for lifestyle, you just, you just need it. And especially like after, you know, I, I was in an, an occupation where I, same thing, like I always wanted to be bigger, stronger, faster to perform better in my job. But for people that don't have that, like once I stopped playing, I still wanted to do it just to feel good and to be healthy and to live longer. And, you know, like I have kids that are 15 and 13 and I'm already thinking forward to like wanting to be active to play with my grandkids. And when my grandkids are five, six, seven. I want to be able to take them on hikes and bike rides and stuff like that. So I think just for quality of life, I like staying active. You mentioned like you'll, you'll set goals for yourself that might not be public, right? You'll go for the half marathon. Has that kind of is that because of the mentality you had as an athlete? You still need to challenge yourself. You still need to put something in front of yourself to attain a goal. Yeah, a hundred percent. And for like, if we're talking about me personally, Murph, like I coach, like I love being around my son. That's probably the, the main reason, but I also coach because there's a little bit of that competitive aspect. I'm working towards something. I'm teaching 15 year olds all the way down to 10 year olds. And then we're trying to like compete. We're trying to win games. We're trying to move these kids on and get them scholarships to college. So I get a little bit of the competitive there, but it's a little, it's more mental because I'm not actually doing it. And then with my job in media, as you know, like you're standing around and you're talking a lot and you're, you're trying to be unbiased. Like you're not really on a team and you're not really like winning or losing. So you don't really have that there. It's not like if you're coaching where you're like, you know, you're in the fight. So I still kind of need like those physical challenges every once in a while, just to kind of, I don't know, like just to give me what I need for what I'm missing from, from playing. So like these little challenges once in a while, like my wife will say, Oh, what are you doing now? And I'll say, Oh, I'm just going to go do this and, and never post it, never send it to anybody. Like, you know, even on a Peloton, get a, get a PR. There's, there's those people that, and it's fine, but there's those people that do Pelotons and then they post it for everyone to see. And maybe they need that recognition for themselves mentally, which is totally fine. But what I'm doing, when I do my little challenges, like these Murph challenges, 
that I did one yesterday. It's do you know do you know what that is? A CrossFit thing. Yeah, it's not named after you, but it's oh, the run a mile. I was mile, a soldier. Yeah, yeah hundred. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hundred pull ups, two hundred push ups, three hundred squats, run a mile, all with a twenty pound vest. Like when I do these things, I'm doing them for myself, just to feel good about myself. Do you find it kind of funny that it took till after your playing career till you really wanted to focus on the post-workout recovery, yoga, the hot tub, the cold tub, these types of things, or is that just come with, you know, you're not old, obviously, but is that just come with making sure you, you recover correctly? Well, I'm not going to say that I didn't do it when I played. Like I did, I was a big cold tub guy. And I just think like I used to put so much into preparation and, and before and training before and warm up and making sure my body was ready to go like little lift before every game and practice. And then after, like, you're just so exhausted. You're so exhausted mentally that you would just kind of be like, okay, I'll jump in the cold tub for two, three minutes and I'm just going to shower. I just want to go home and eat and relax. So maybe it was a little bit more of a laziness that I didn't do as much as I should. And now probably realize, obviously being older, that I, I do need a little bit more of that just to feel good and feel limber. And, and I've had had a lot of injuries from my career. Like I think about like breaking my feet three times and, you know, like knee MCL tears and shattering my hand and like carving out my Achilles twice and broken noses and no tendon in my one hand. Like I've had every injury possible. And honestly, like I wake up most days, I don't feel any of them. I don't, I don't feel any of them. And then when I, when I get a little sloppy or like I travel on the weekends to go to Toronto and like, I don't sleep on Saturday nights because I want to go right to the airport to get through customs. So Sunday, like when I'm a little bit tired, I start to feel some stuff. And then when I get back on my routine Monday, I feel good again. So just giving myself like a day for like to get a little sloppy with my diet or exercise for a day, all these old injuries start coming back and all the inflammation starts coming back. So you have to, you have to think about prevention at this point. Talk about the travel now, because I mean, both been in the field where you do a lot of it. When you know you can't be perfect with your diet, with your exercise routine, with your sleep habits, what do you do then to minimize the damage? Well, when my do- when I know my sleep habits aren't going to be good. So when I, when I fly Fridays, for instance, I fly like 11 o'clock middle of the day. Like I should, I have an unreal breakfast. I exercise before I go. So I, I set myself up for Saturday by doing the right things Friday. I get in Friday. I have a good meal. I sleep like nine hours, which is a luxury because obviously I'm in a hotel with no kids. And I, I want to try to sleep in as late as I can on Saturday because I know I'm going to be not sleeping that night. And then when I wake up, really good breakfast, oatmeal, water, coffee, right to the gym. Gym's empty. As you know, You know when, when you're in a hotel with media, gym's always empty. So I got the whole gym to myself. And so like you're taking care of yourself knowing that there's going to be a window where you're not going to be able to. Knowing that I'm going to be working like 10 hours in a row with, you know, they do the, they do the best job they can of giving you food in the studio, but you know what it's like, like you get hungry, you start eating chips and all that crap and drinking as much coffee as you can. But so that window of 10 hours on Saturday, all the way through till I get home, I know there's not going to be much I can do for my body because I have a job like most people. So it's setting yourself up before and then same thing Sunday, I make sure I'm in bed by nine, get enough sleep. So when I wake up Monday at 545, I'm ready to go again. Do you think this mentality was based off of your career in terms of setting physical expectations and setting yourself up for success physically? Is that just a carryover from, from your job as a player? It might be, but I think I learned at some point, I, I don't know when I learned if, if I want something, if I want to accomplish something, I just have to like 
sit down, think, be honest with myself and say, like, how do I obtain this? Like, how do I accomplish this? I want to be, I want to be in good shape still. I want to feel really good, but I also have a job to do. I have hard travel to do. So how am I going to make this happen? So I, I come up with a plan and then, then I execute it. Like that's the way my brain works. Like I'm, I'm come up with a plan and I execute it. I know I'm going to be for, you know, 30 hours and I have, there's going to be nothing I can do. I'm going to be beating up my body. So what do I do? Well, I think I have a really good five days before, and then I have a really good day or two after, and that's how I'm, how I'm going to overcome this obstacle. So it, it's just like what you want. If you want to feel like crap all the time and feel sluggish and inflamed and overweight and tired and cranky and miserable, then then you just, it's easy to do that. I think it's a little bit harder to like put the work in to feel good. Like it takes effort to feel good. I, I think too, that's a good lesson for people that are just getting started that being prepared and bring, being organized, set yourself up on Sunday night, maybe figure out what your schedule is on Monday. You walk the dog on Tuesday, you take a little bike ride, you know, on Wednesday, you have a stretch for people that are just getting started. If you can be prepared and organized and know what each day is supposed to have, it's going to make it a lot easier than just getting up and saying, okay, what am I going to do today? Because ultimately you're not going to accomplish something in times like that. You know what the easiest thing to do is also is just staying hydrated. Staying hydrated is such an easy thing to do and it's so good for you and it just helps out with everything. So just drowning yourself with water constantly, just always being hydrated. It's just a little tiny thing you can do that helps your body so much, helps with digestion and helps with in like everything. So easy, easy goal to set every day is to be overhydrated. Okay. So it's one thing we like to talk about is being proactive, you know, and, and making sure you're not being reactive, not waiting until something's wrong to uh, find out what's wrong. Like go in, uh, get checked up if you're not feeling great. And so when you were a player, uh, you know, the health responsibility was with the team, right? You had doctors, you had trainers, you had physios, you, you know, then you go, you retire, you're on your own. Do you still manage your health in that same sort of way? Are you proactive in dealing with your medical specialists in your day-to-day life? Uh, no, I'm not Murph. Another area where I could be a lot better at. And for me, it's not to make excuses, but you know, I'm, I'm a Canadian living in the U S uh, you know, healthcare is different. I don't really go to the team doctor in Anaheim anymore, kind of on my own that way. I just feel, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I feel like if I'm taking care of myself and I'm on top of my body and I have a good pulse and I'm pushing myself every once in a while, that if something major, if something's majorly wrong, I'll just, I'll feel it. I'll feel off because I'm so in tune with my body. So I know that's not enough. And especially as I get older, I know there's, there's checks and balances that have to be done. So that's probably like my challenge right now is to make sure that I'm getting in for my, my physicals, my annual, my semi physicals, but I'm aware I've surrounded myself with enough friends that, um, I can learn off of as well that have gone through things that are a couple of years older. So yeah, that's a challenge for me for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it starts with the semi-annual and annual checkups for sure. And then you can always discuss with your, your general physician if something else is going wrong. And that's me, Murph. Like think about people that like men that are 10, 15, 20 years older than me, like if I'm the one saying like every generation's a little bit different, right? The, the generation of our parents, like my dad, it's a constant battle for him to go to more doctor checkups and to change his diet slightly and to do some more exercise. It, it usually ends with him saying, mind your own business, Kevin, him hanging up on me or, <laughs> or just like a no text response for like a week until he wants to talk about something else. So, and 
I think that's the biggest thing for a lot of men that get set in their way and and think I don't need doctors. You know, like really, if you want to prolong your life and be healthy, then you're going to need help from science at some point. Is he ever receptive to what you tell him? Because he didn't he have a health scare a short time ago. He had his first heart attack when we had our Heritage Classic outdoor game the morning of. And I almost missed that game and then had a couple stents in place. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me talking about it. And so now, like he's, you know, he's in his mid to late 60s and he's uh, he still works. He's still president of the local steelworkers union. He still puts in long, long days and hours, you know, fighting for his membership and he pushes his body. And I think like most men at that age, like probably guilty of not taking well enough care of it. I don't think his diet's terrible. I think he doesn't, I don't think he drinks that often, but I think there still has to be a little bit more as far as sleep and hydration and, and exercise that would help him feel a lot better and keep that respiratory system in check. Yeah. So then I guess you're acutely aware of like family history then, if there's ever been things in your past with your family? A little bit because both my grandparents were immigrants. So my my mom's side both came from Italy and not a lot of money and, and science there. So we, we don't know a whole lot of the history. We know a couple. There was a heart, some heart issues on my grandfather's side and my mom's. But then my dad's side, his father, uh, he passed away when I was really young and he was in the army and, you know, we don't know anything about him. He was like a Jedi. And then my grandmother, she also died when I was not young, but same thing, like didn't talk a whole lot. So we're pretty like, we're pretty like naive to what's going on on my dad's side, unfortunately. And then my mom's side, we don't know much more. So that that's challenging as well. That's why we have to rely on probably going to more doctor appointments, right? Yeah, you got to stay on Big Al about that. Yeah. We all have stories of, uh, of friends and family members. I've, I've said on this podcast before, I had a buddy that was diagnosed stage four colon cancer at 39. Um, and he took pretty good care of himself. He was in good shape. You know, he passed away a year and a half later. Um, and then a friend of ours, you know, Mark Slavin, you know, a guy that perhaps didn't take as good a care of himself than he should have. And I think those are all experiences that that open our eyes to making sure that you you have to try to at least do the right things or get going on the right path to make sure you're putting yourself up for success physically. Yeah, with Slav, like I remember when he went to an appointment, maybe like a month before he had a stroke and, and saying to me one time at having a coffee, oh, like the doc's worried about me. He's saying it's it's not good. And I still remember it not sinking in, just kind of laughing at him like, well, no kidding, Slav. Like, well, what did you expect, right? You never go to the doctors. You never take care of yourself. You can't spell the word vitamin. But uh, anyways, he ended up having stroke and ultimately lost his life too. And it was something that was probably preventable had he got it a little bit earlier, had like, I can't remember exactly, but I think he didn't go to the doctors for like 15 years or something like something ridiculous like that. And not really taking care of himself, not really being physical, not sweating, like all the things I talk about, probably never hydrated. I don't know. It's just, it's sad because, you know, I know it's everybody's decision, but he probably had another 15, 20 years left in his life. And he was an unbelievable guy and a really good friend and we, we needed him and we miss him still. Yeah, no question. Do you think that if you had that conversation with someone that was close to you now that was in the same situation, you'd handle it differ, differently and maybe pressure them a little bit more to actually try to make some changes? Yeah, I think so. But you never know, right? You never really know how somebody else is feeling. And you just assume that they're, like I said earlier, like you're in touch with your own body and you feel if something's off and then you do something about it. And that's that's the sad part. Maybe you can't, like now I'm kind of talking myself out of what I do. Like maybe you can't do that. Maybe you can't just feel your body and feel when you need to to go in for tests. Maybe you do have to be proactive and, and get ahead of everything. 
You've got a very active family. I mean, you mentioned your son, hockey player. I think your daughter does a lot of dance. Yeah. Yeah. Do they, the, what role do they play, you know, in your healthcare and maybe mental and physical health, just having them around and being so active and being a big part, especially with coaching your son? Well, I just think it, our whole family is active and, and that's like, I'm proud that my wife and I are able to kind of instill that in them. And, and we, we spend all summers with my wife's one sister and, and her husband, who's a firefighter. She's a teacher. And then they have a blended family of, of three kids and we're together basically all summer at my cottage. And every day I got a really nice gym at my cottage. Every day, everybody is either in the gym or swimming or playing tennis at some point. It's, it's pretty cool to see everybody. Like my son's obviously training in the gym for his hockey and my brother-in-law is training to be a firefighter or remain a firefighter and stay in good shape for his uh, job. And my wife's doing all of her exercises and runs and, and my sister-in-law, and then all the kids are doing their own, all their individual things. So it's, it's just quality of life and lifestyle again, to have everybody active all the time and feeling good. And then we can have like nice dinners together and you feel like you've accomplished something physically. And then when you're sitting around and sitting by the fire or watching a movie at night, at least, you know, you did something during the day and just makes for a great quality of life. Nice. You can have a nice reward at the end of the night if you know you did what you wanted to do physically. Hey, like maybe a cigar if you really had a good, like I, <laughs> the only time I have cigar, I enjoy a cigar, Murph. The only time I have a cigar is if I had a really good workout or run the, that day in the morning. That's the only time. Like if I go golfing after, I have to have had, I, it's just a mental thing. I've had to have accomplished something really hard to reward myself with something that's probably not the best for you. All right, well, we've covered some of the physical health, but let's pivot a little bit to mental health. And I guess for those who aren't familiar, and I think a lot of people are, but maybe if someone's just tuning in for the first time and, and knows who you are, but doesn't really know your story, uh, maybe just uh, tell us what led you to become a, a mental health advocate. And it's a painful story. It's a touching story, but I think it's one that still resonates every time you tell us. Well, it was a friend, Rick Rippin, and we came up together. We played in the AHL, and then we were both called up to the NHL the same time. And uh, I think I played our first games within one or two games of each other. But needless to say, we both came up together, like really good friends, had a lot in common, hung out all the time. And then one training camp, we were driving to the practice rink in Burnaby, and he kind of confided in me that he'd been having some feelings and he didn't really quite understand them, but he just knew he was really unhappy and he almost didn't come back. And And I remember thinking at the time, like we just, we just had finally made the NHL. Like we played like our first kind of half season and got our feet wet and we were going into the training camp the next year thinking like, we're finally going to be NHLers like full-time players, like worked our whole lives to it, like Canadian kids. Like this is like the pinnacle of what we want to accomplish. And I remember thinking like, how are you having these feelings now? Like, these are the feelings you have maybe like, this is what I'm thinking at the time. Like when you don't accomplish something, you get cut, you lose a job or like, I just didn't associate what he was feeling with, like where we were in our lives. We were young, we're, we're like on the uprise. And, and that's when I kind of realized like, you don't control how you feel. Like you, obviously he didn't want to feel like that. He had so much to be happy and grateful and he was, you know, had ambition and everything. But anyways, that's, that was the start of it. And you know, to make a long story short, there was, we had, we reached out to the league and he was in the the program for a while, trying to get help from Dr. Shaw and I was talking with therapists and he tried medication and medication doesn't work for some, it works for others. It's not always the answer, but it, it really helps a lot of people balance them out, uh, antidepressants and 
it was a long struggle. He left. He took a couple leaves of absences. I went the one time with Craig Heisinger, who was the uh, GM of the AHL team at the time, who's now with the Winnipeg Jets, of course. And we actually like dragged him out of his house and brought him back to Vancouver because we thought it was good for him to be around the guys. And myself and my family was young, so he lived with me for a while. And then we thought we kind of got over a hurdle. And next thing you know, he kind of took another leave. And then we had our 2011 run to the Stanley Cup finals and kept in contact with him the whole time. And then that summer after, he had signed a, another contract to go back and play in Winnipeg, which was I thought was going to be great for him mentally. Craig Heisinger was there. Where we started, it was a great city. It was a great opportunity. And then he took his life on August 15th, just before heading to training camp, which again, you know, it was right at a time where he had so much to be excited about, but he was just, he was fighting demons for lack of a better term. And he just couldn't overcome his, his feelings. And it wasn't from a lack of trying. He fought, he fought this battle for years and years and years and the root of the cause and, and everything, like it's still not determined, but there was a lot of childhood trauma and, and girlfriend that passed away in a car accident. And there was a lot of like, there was a root to it and we just never could overcome it. How much did your knowledge base in this area of mental health and depression grow over the years that you knew Rick as you were trying to help him and and understand him and what he was going through? Like I had to educate myself and I had some I had a stepsister that struggled a little bit, but it was still new. Like science was still very new back then for for mental health. And we're still not where we need to be. Think about what it was like 20 years ago. You know, if you were going through this, people are like, oh, you're mentally weak. Oh, like it was looked at as a negative, not as a disease as what, what it is now. So obviously me, like not knowing any more than anybody else, like you had to do some research. You had to, to listen. I had a lot of talks with Dr. Shaw myself, my wife, who was also going through something similar would educate me. And I'm still learning. I'm still trying to learn because I don't have mental illness. So like Michael Landsberg told me, unless you're suffering with it, you don't, you can't understand it. You can't really understand what somebody's going through uh, if you're not manic depressive and they are, or if you don't have high anxiety and they do. So it's something that I'm still trying to learn. But, you know, from dealing with Rick, I didn't know what to say to him. What do I say? I'm, but I'm the friend that he confided in. So I just, I listened to him tell me the same concerns and anxieties and worries over and over and over again. And I remember thinking like, you just told me that story like 10 times, but I would just listen. I would listen over and over again. And I was just, an ear for him and I was just there for him. And then I took it to the next level when I thought it was a problem. I talked to Mike Gillis and, and the, the management team in Vancouver. And then they're like, okay, like they were super supportive. Like, what do we do next? And we, we just went along the, the chain of like, how do we, how do we help him? How do we support him? You're so forward facing on this and you just mentioned you're not a, a health professional. So I'm sure a lot of people reach out to you, especially when these stories are shared. So how do you try to help others that you may not know that ask you questions or say, you know, Rick's story inspired me and, and, and I'm having these feelings too. I'm sure you get a lot of public people asking these questions. Yeah. I've, I've had a lot of people reach out to me thinking that like I can help them as well. And, and I guess I can just direct them the right way. And, and I think if the first thing I, I just try to encourage them, whether I know them or not, because when they reach out to me in a DM, I have no idea who they are. So the first thing I try to encourage them to do is talk to somebody that you that you trust somebody in your world, talk to like a sister, a cousin, a best friend, an uncle, don't just bottle it up and try to deal with it yourself, get it out there and just get it in the hands of one or two or three people you trust and just allow yourself to kind of breathe 
And then now you have some help. You have some different minds that are can also hear your story and think, and and you can come up with a plan together of what the next step is, whether that's going to a psychologist, a therapist, a doctor. Like I mentioned, medication helps a lot. But I think trying to deal with it you're on your own because of uh, whether it's pride or it's shame, I think it just that's that's when lives are ended. I think you need as much help as you can. And nowadays, I think everybody understands that mental health is is a disease. It's like tearing your MCL. How do you fix your MCL if you don't go to a doctor, if you don't get casted, if you don't get injections, if you don't immobilize it, if you don't do PT, like your knee never goes back. And it's the same with mental illness. If you have mental illness, you need help from a doctor to overcome it. And there are, you know, there are resources too on Canadian Men's Health uh, webpage. This, if you're just starting to have these feelings, there's um, uh, tools and toolkits you can use there. Maybe I'll just finish with this. Uh, Rick always said he wanted to help others with his story. So what positive outcomes do you think he'd be happy about today? Well, I think he'd be happy with the growth. And, and when he first took his life, TC Carling and I would go around to schools and we'd do youth summits and he had a passion for kids. He, he never had the, the opportunity to have his own, but he he loved my son for sure. My daughter was too young, but he loved my son. Uh, he just loved kids and wanted to help kids. And I think he understood the way he was feeling was not good. And he just wanted to help prevent that for other kids that were going through the same thing. So it all started kind of in the schools and then the the mental health initiative with the NHL, Vancouver being at the forefront of that. With, with all the great people that work for the Canucks and to where it is today, where almost the whole league recognizes Mental Health Month. Still a way to go, but it's it's all about destigmatizing it and just making sure the world understands that it's a disease and it's not a weakness. I think that's the reason why so many people suffered in silence is because of the stigma. They thought it was a weakness. They thought they were going to be laughed at. They thought they were going to be frowned upon. They thought it would affect their job if their boss thinks they can't handle their own emotions. And getting that out to the public and having so many prominent athletes speak out about their mental illness, whether it's Robin Leonard at the NHL Awards or uh, there's so many people in so many different sports. All right. It's called the Don't Change Much podcast. Kevin Bieksa, what does don't change much mean to you when you hear that phrase? Well, it means like little subtle changes, like uh, overhydrating, like sweating every day, like opening up to one person about your feelings. It's not a lot. These aren't huge catastrophic changes to your lifestyle, but they will change the quality of your life. Just takes a couple little things. Thanks for your time, friend. Always the best, Murph, to see you and talk to you. Thank you for listening. And a big thanks to everyone who already follows. If you haven't yet, click the follow button on your podcast app so you don't miss upcoming episodes and special guests. Join us every month for a new installment of the Don't Change Much podcast. And if you're new to the show, be sure to check out previous episodes with guests including John Herdman, Kelly Rudy, Trevor Linden, and more. For more helpful tips on improving your mental and physical health, visit menshealthfoundation.ca and don'tchangemuch.ca.